So we're starting this new series this week, and I'm actually really excited about it because we're talking about money. And what, if you know me at all, you know I don't like to talk about money. It, it kind of freaks me out. I hate that the church has this, like, reputation around money. And mostly I hate that some people struggle in their relationship with God, this idea of pursuing Jesus because of the church's reputation about money. I hate that that gets in the way of things. And, uh, in fact, I know a lot of you have heard me make fun of K-Love. In all honesty, the, the music's fine. What I think what b- drives me the most crazy about K-Love is their begathons, you know, when they, every once in a while. Um, and I understand they have to make money and the donations are how they do it. And I get that. But I always worry about that one non-believer who's just scanning through his radio and, you know, he bumps into what's his name, you know, going, and if you like Sally's story and the way she pursued Jesus, but maybe think of giving a monthly donation here to K-Love so that more people like Sally, you know. And I, and I always worry about that guy who's just flipping through, and the only two people here are asking for money is, you know, NPR so they can play bad jazz and Christians. And so that always um, worries me, and it makes me want to avoid the topic uh, because I, cause I know we have a reputation when it comes to money. But... If I'm honest, this idea of kind of understanding money biblically, and especially as it relates to the church, was the very first, like, real Bible debate I ever had. When I was in Bible college, I bumped into a verse um, that is going to be so much fun. I am actually not sharing that verse till next week, so you have to come back next week. See what I just did there? <laughs> but but it's, I barely even have to add any commentary, and it's going to, I guarantee it's going to make you go, What? It's that awesome. So when I bumped into that verse in Bible college, I took it to my Bible college professor, and I was like, hey, what is, what is this? This doesn't match what we've been taught in church. I've never heard anybody talk about this verse. To this day, I've never heard anybody teach on this verse. And, uh, and he was like, well, it's way more complicated than you realize. You just need to pray that God reveals it to you because there's a lot more going on there. And he wouldn't really give me much. So I started seeking out other pastors and, and thinkers and saying, so what does this mean? Like, how do we, how does that work? And I would get some honest ones. It would be like, dude, if you tell people that, they'll never give. And if they never give, they'll never get blessed. And if, uh, and so if you have to kind of make them do something they don't want to do so that they can be blessed. So it's really all for their good. So just stay away from, stay away from that verse. And I never really believed this. I've always struggled with it. I've always Believe honesty is best, especially when dealing with the scripture. And so I'm a little nervous to talk about money, but I'm so excited because this is really my first opportunity to take this concept that I've wrestled with, this idea that's bothered me for 28 years. This is the first time I'm in a position to go, I'm going to let it mess with you too now. I'm going to throw it out there and screw with your heads too. But uh, before we can get into any of that good stuff, uh, we have to lay um, a bit of a foundation. And this is also fun. I'm going to, I'm just going to get crazy honest um, for this series and talk about some things that we don't talk about. Uh, anybody know what proof texting is? Have you ever heard that phrase, proof texting? Okay, so proof texting is when you, I swear I'm going to lose my pastor membership card for this. It's when you, uh, it's when you take, it's kind of one of the dirty little secrets that preachers don't want to talk about. Um, it's when you take a couple verses from random places in the scripture, you piece them together so that they all basically say the same thing, and, uh, and you kind of usually use it sometimes, unfortunately, to form a whole doctrine, but usually to make like a really powerful point in a sermon. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, about where we pull verses from, but 
This is kind of the bread and butter of uh, most preachers. So technically, you can write a good psychological speech or a good motivational speech, and you find three verses from random places that kind of say the same thing you already want to say, and you use them to make it sound like you're preaching from the Bible. And really, it's just it's what you want to say about the thing. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible. And how many of you would agree that we probably heard 25 in sermons over and over and over and over again, right? We, we, <laughs> I got dug back and going, what is he doing? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, and believe me, I'm not trying to, you know, fully criticize proof texting. It's, it's, it's kind of what we have to do sometimes, and it's really hard not to. I, I literally fight this temptation every single week. I try to go... And stay in a text. Have you, has anybody ever been listening to me preach with me like, man, that one verse, why didn't he say that one verse? Like, it would fit perfectly here. Anybody ever felt that temptation? Like, you think of the verse that would go so perfectly in this sermon? I, a lot of times I know those verses are there and I fight the temptation to go get them because I know I could proof text almost anything I want. And so it's, it's something I usually try to stay in a passage. I try and pull out the historical and the kind of literary background of the passage so we know what's happening in this passage specifically without jumping all over. It's something I, I fight the temptation to do. But it's hard um, because if you're trying to write a 45-minute speech off of a book that was 3,500 years in the making by 40-some different authors, it's hard not just to grab and pick and choose the verses you want. There's no way in a Sunday morning sermon I could give you real context of, you know, 30 years of study in a 3,500-year-old book. So it's, uh, it's hard not to do. I usually try to treat just the passage, maintaining kind of our Christian Orthodox beliefs, but also bringing in the history and the kind of literary aspects. And sometimes there are just, you know, great verses, and, and it's hard not to pull them in. But I'm going to give you a quick example. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for the fire for the burnt offering and set out to the place God had told him about. So here we have a passage in the Old Testament where God's kind of jealous nature comes out. We, the Bible tells us God is a jealous God. And in this situation, he seems to be uh, jealous of Abraham's relationship with his son. And so he calls Abraham uh, to kill his only son as an offering. And in case you are tempted to say, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. Things were weird back then. Let me pull you into the New Testament with this. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. So here's a New Testament author, one of the disciples, almost 2,000 years after Abraham, saying that it was actually this act of offering up his son that made Abraham God's friend. We can clearly see that, that, that 
child sacrifice is not only one of the oldest spiritual disciplines in our faith, but it holds true even though Jesus, even through Jesus and his closest followers. In the case that's not proof enough, we get a third verse from, it, from Hebrews that said, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. He did it by faith. That same author puts this in that chapter, and it is impossible to please him without faith. So since we have to have faith to please God, and Abraham showed his faith by sacrificing his son Isaac, and since one of Jesus' very disciples condoned this sacrifice as an act of faith, we can only conclude the purest and most enduring spiritual discipline is offering our children as burnt offerings. Now let me ask you this. Who on earth thinks that the Bible is pro-child sacrifice? Please don't raise your hand right now. But how many of you have heard a preacher at one time or another pull three verses and make a very strong doctoral statement from three verses pulled from random places? Anyone? It's what we do. It, and it's, it can be dangerous. And there are sometimes we have to do it. Don't get me wrong. But it can be dangerous. I can, I can make the Bible, I can pull random verses and make the Bible say some crazy things. People have used the scripture to come to some crazy conclusions all throughout history. And they backed it with the scripture. We have to be super careful when we proof text. And just for the record, just to give you another little preacher trick, I snuck another one in here because one of those verses um, didn't say what I wanted to say in the version I used. And so I switched versions from New Living to New King James because it sounded better for what I wanted to say. Another little trick in case you want to know. I'm letting it all out today. You guys get to see behind the curtain today at the man pulling the levers. I don't tell you to criticize other preachers. I definitely don't want to undermine or weaken the influence of the pulpit. But I do want you to understand the challenges that preachers are under. And I personally want to be transparent about what we are trying to do different here. I, I have had some people, you know, question, you know, why I add so much history and it. Sometimes it feels dry and it's so much background. I, I am trying to be honest with the text and bring the text as it's written, not just write what I want to say and pull a couple verses to give, uh, to give backing. But I say all that to say there are some topics you can't help but proof text. <laughs> I said all that to say I'm going to spend the next four weeks proof texting. Because there are some subjects that you can't just pull one passage and get a true understanding of what the Bible has to say about a given idea. You have to pull it from random places. And, and money is one of those. Money, there is no one set place I can go and say, this is what the Bible has to say about money. We have to pull from a few different ideas and a few different places. So for the next four weeks, I'm going to be proof testing my main verse next week. I, I don't have to, I'm not even going to give much commentary. It's going to be so fun. You do not want to miss next week. I'm going to throw it out there and just let you, I might even have like five minutes of silence while you chew on this verse because it's, uh, it's going to be fun. It's, it's going to be tricky. We're titling this series in God We Trust. Um, which, as we know, is printed on our money here in America. Um, but when I looked up that phrase, there's some actually pretty interesting history um, around it. Did anybody know when that showed up on our money? Feels like it's always been there, right? 1956, like fairly late in the game. It was introduced as the motto for the 125th 
Pennsylvania infantry in the Civil War. And it was suggested to Lincoln's Treasury Secretary to put it on union money. It was kind of as an idea of God's on our side in this fight. It was used almost defensively, like, like you can trust in whatever you want. We're trusting in God kind of thing. So it was suggested to put it on union money in the Civil War. It, it never took place. It showed up on a couple coins randomly um, here and there. And then in 1956, Congress and President Eisenhower made this mandatory to put on all American money and also made it the motto of America. It's actually our official motto. It was switched from its original motto, which was e pluribus, e pluribus unum, from many one. It was switched from from many one to in God we trust in 1956. became America's um, motto. Uh, and what's ironic about it is that came on the heels within a couple months of the USSR officially declaring themselves to be an atheist state. And so kind of America's reaction to Russia saying they were an official uh, atheist state was us going, okay, well, in God we trust. So it was, once again, almost like the Civil War. It was almost like our attempt to say um, we want to line up on, on God's side in this conflict, in this battle. So it's something we've always used kind of defensively in the U.S., as a way to uh, put ourselves on the right side. But I've chosen this phrase not because of the fact that it's the motto of the United States, but because nothing else seems to call into question our trust in God um, more than money, right? I mean, if someone tells us that it's good for us to pray, um, we, we pray. We give it a shot. We try. Like, uh, we, we pray and see what happens. If someone tells us there's a, an eternal benefit if we quit smoking, drinking, cussing, gambling, dancing, um, we do, because that's, that's phrase. If, if the preacher man tells us you've got to come down to the altar and pray to get into heaven, we do it because it's fairly easy to do. But the second somebody tries to tell us what to do with our hard-earned money, we get real defensive real quick, right? We fight that. Like that, it, it strikes at something very real in us. We can get really defensive. So our real passage this week comes from... Uh, Genesis is actually one we talked about in our last series, and it, uh, it's what we call the cultural mandate. So this is the first command God gave Adam and Eve, and it was to make culture, to, to create culture. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. The cultural mandate. God has declared himself to be owner over everything. In this chapter, by the simplest means possible, he created everything out of nothing. He declares himself owner by creating it and making it. And with all this stuff he made, he set humans over it to steward it, to, to govern it, it says, to manage God's property. And this is reinforced with passages like Job. Who has given me anything that I need to pay back? Everything under heaven is mine. This is God speaking to Job. Moses adds this. Look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it all belong to the Lord your God. David jumps in. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. The Bible over and over again declares that God is the owner of everything, which makes perfect sense because when you go back and think about what Adam and Eve owned, what they had when they were put in the garden to manage God's stuff 
It was nothing. They had nothing, literally not even their own life and breath before God put them in charge of the garden. They had nothing they could claim to be their own. Everything they had had just been given to them. They had a, just a, a real kind of tangible black and white example of really the way we all live. Everything they had had been given to them. But I'm proof texting, right? I'm jumping all over to pull verses. Because there is a tension to this. And the tension comes in with things like the Ten Commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. We're really familiar with these, but there's an underlying kind of implication. What is implied in those commandments? Who wants to guess? What's implied, what's not said, but what's implied is ownership. Don't steal. That means somebody else owns it. You can't have it because he owns it. Don't take somebody's wife because he's not yours. That's someone else's. So underneath the Ten Commandments is this, is this kind of implication that some stuff is yours, some stuff is mine. I'm not allowed to take what's yours. You're not allowed to take what's mine. Now, technically, we none of us own anything. It's all God's. And yet, the Bible constantly tells us not to touch somebody else's stuff. They own it. It's theirs. So you feel the tension? It's a fundamental tension. You are both a steward of God's stuff, and you own it. It's yours, and you can do whatever you want with it. We live in that fundamental tension of everything is God's, and what's yours is yours, and no one else should take it. The Bible enforces both. And this is the tension that makes a mess of money, isn't it, as as it relates to the church? Because usually what preachers do is they stand up here, and they tell you, everything is God's. But this one percentage is more God's than everything else that's God's. And so that's the part you've got to give back to God, is that one part that's more God's than everything else that's God's. It's really fun being honest. Actually, it's more fun than you'd think. So before we go any further, the first thing I want to kind of establish is that this tension between what God owns and what you own is the tension we're going to be speaking into for the next four weeks. And it's, it's, it's not an easy tension because absolutely you are nothing but a steward of, of the things you have. And yet the Bible constantly reinforces your freedom to do with your stuff what you want. Second thing I want to establish as we lay this foundation for this series is exactly what the Bible says means when it says money. Because this is uh, difficult. It's, it's super easy to get wrong. It seems obvious, but when you remember we're learning from a book that has existed in countless cultures and just as many economic systems, some of which aren't even currency-based, it's worth discussing what the Bible means when it says money. It's super easy to read it into an American culture where money means a checkbook, a credit card, money. But this same book has to fit in cultures that don't use currency, that don't use money. So the Bible's got to be talking about something more when it says money. And I think it goes back to what we said about Adam and Eve. When you think about what they had 
money-wise when they received the cultural mandate. It was nothing. They owned nothing. Nothing was theirs. So when you think about what they were given stewardship over, it wasn't a checking account and a gold card. It was everything. It was literally their breath, their life, their time, the, the garden, everything they had was to be stewarded. The Bible transcends the dollar bill, the yen, and the euro. When the Bible talks about money, it stands for everything you have control over. Everything you steward. Everything. When we talk about giving and generosity, management, even inheritance, we're talking about more than a bottom line. When we talk about giving, we're not just talking about giving your money, we're talking about giving yourself. Your time and service, yes, but also offering of yourself, your real, honest, authentic self to another to say, I'm here for you. I'm here to, to see you and to hear you. That is giving. That is stewardship. That's something we don't have to do. We can close ourselves off. We can absolutely do that. When we talk about generosity, we're talking about everything. When we talk about inheritance, we're talking about far more than the money you leave for your kids. We're talking about the, the, the stories you leave for your kids, the, the heritage, the, the, the faith you leave for your kids. When we talk about money in the Bible, we're talking about far more than your cash. We're talking about your everything. Your everything. My family was reminded of this poignantly this week. As many of you know, we had to cancel the New Year's Eve service. And I know when I texted and emailed everybody, it, it was a little bit enigmatic. And I complain all the time about churches that only show the shiny, polished stuff. You know, the, the bad stuff happens in the back, and then we come out and talk about all the amazing things God is doing. And I don't want to do that, so I'm going to try to be as authentic as I can without turning this into a counseling session. But Esther and I just mismanaged our resources. It was not our physical resources, our emotional and strength resources. We had let ourselves get run down for weeks, even months, and uh, we didn't Sabbath like the Bible commands us to. We didn't manage our resources the way the Bible tells us to, and we ran out of steam. So Tuesday morning, we woke up and had a humdinger of a fight. It was a good one. It was for the records. We were, she was mentally exhausted, physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted. I was tired, so I was feeling defensive and self-pitying, and it turned into an argument, and a good one. And our New Year's Eve service is so intimate and personal that it didn't feel like the kind of service we could just, let's just put on a smile and get through this. Like, I'd do that to you on a Sunday, but <laughs> I'd smile and make church happen. But this is one of those services where we can't do that. We couldn't, we couldn't come up and pretend like everything was okay. We were mad at each other and not getting along, and didn't feel right to come and put our hands on people and pray for them when we were in that kind of funk. We were in a funk. And it was because we didn't budget well. We, we, we knew we had some emotional and stress-related bills to pay, and we didn't save up for them. You know, we're really good at knowing when our auto insurance is coming and we save up for it so the money's there when it's time to pay the auto insurance. We didn't do that with our energy we knew, we knew there were some bills to pay. We knew there were some really stressful things coming up. We didn't rest. We didn't take some time down to, 
to save up our resources so we could pay that bill when it came due. And, and because of that, we missed out on one of our favorite nights of the year. When the Bible tells you how to manage your resources, it's so much more than money. It's telling you how to manage your very being. When the Bible tells you to rest, it's not, it's not and this is something I've said in here before, but you may know what day man was created on. Six, day six, right, which means his very first full day was the seventh day. His very first full day was a day of rest. So man showed up and worked from his rest. He didn't rest from his work. You understand the the flow there? The Bible tells us to work from a place of rest, not wear yourself out with work and then rest. We rest because God tells us to. It's how he tells us to manage our resources so that from that place of rest, we can work. And we didn't do that. We just worked until we ran out. So if we were talking in terms of money, we hit a big bill and didn't have anything to pay it. When we talk about money, especially what the Bible says about money, please know that ultimately we're talking about our very hearts, who we are as a person. Jesus, we're going to proof text some more. Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. He's not saying that 100% of the world thinks about nothing else but their treasure. He's saying your treasure and your heart are connected. When When he says treasure, he means everything about you. When the Bible talks about your money, it's not talking about your bank account. It's talking about your heart. Your very heart. So how do we respond to this? First, embrace the tension. Embrace the tension of, of resources. Next week I'm going to talk about giving, especially as it relates to the church, and I promise you it's not going to be like anything you've ever heard before. Come back next week. Have I said that enough? But I promise you, you will not hear me say there's a particular percentage of your income that belongs to God. You will not hear me say that he can do more with your 90% than you could do with your 100. Anybody ever heard that? The truth, as it turns out, involves far more tension. The truth is, no matter how hard you work for it, everything you have is God's. All of it. And if he wants it, All he has to do is wait you out. He'll be here with your house long after you're gone. He doesn't need you to give it. Your lifespan is far shorter than his. If he wants your stuff, all he has to do is wait a half a second, and you'll be gone, and he'll take it. He'll be here owning all your stuff long after you're gone. But the tension comes in is that while you hold it, it's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. So embrace that tension this morning. There's, there is no simple answer on how to steward well. This is the biggest issue with much of the church's stance on tithing is we try to break it down to something you can do with a calculator, right? Something you can just punch in a number and it tells you how much you're supposed to give. We reduce the everything the Bible says about money to fourth grade math. Real stewardship says that every single thing I own 
from my health to my house to my money to my motivations. It's all God's. He owns all of it. And at the same time, he has given me the ability to control those things. God not only gave it to me, he told everybody else they can't have it. So as we take communion this morning, take a minute and wrestle with that tension. Ask yourself, where in your life, in your guts, do you feel like the owner of your stuff? Like, what area of your life do you feel like, that's mine. I don't let anybody else touch that. If God were to tell me to do that, I would say no. Like, wrestle with that. Be honest. Which parts of your life do you control? And then maybe wrestle with this question. If Jesus showed up today right now and he asked you, tell me how you've stewarded the stuff I gave you. How do you think that conversation would go? How are you stewarding? How are you doing? I imagine I would, I would immediately go to the, the fact that I, I, like, I like giving. I'm, I'm a pretty natural giver. My mom, who's actually here today, used to make fun of me because when I was young, we didn't have two nickels to rub together, and she'd save up all year to buy me a, a nice Christmas present, and the very next day I'd give it to a friend who had way more than we had. I was like, but he didn't get a Tonka truck, so I gave it to him. I just give it away. I just, I've never had a trouble giving. So I imagine I would tell Jesus, Jesus, I gave. I always gave. I loved giving. And he would say, how'd you steward your health? And I would go, <laughs> So think about that. If Jesus asked you, how are you stewarding your stuff, your resources, not just your money, your everything, how are you managing it? How are you doing? How would that conversation go? Be honest about it. Wrestle with it. Maybe the most significant experience Esther and I ever had concerning money was over 20 years ago. I had loaned um, quite a bit of money to a friend, uh, most of it from a credit card, because I'm good with money. I had, he had needed some money. He was holding a check in his hand, and he was like, he was actually going on his honeymoon. I paid for his honeymoon. Pretty awesome. But he had a check from, we were building houses. He had a check from the builder. We were framing houses. He was like, dude, the check's not going to clear in time for me to go on my honeymoon. I was like, don't worry, I got this. I cash advanced a bunch of money. I was like, you can pay me when you get back. I was looking at the check. Didn't realize he had written enough checks to eat up that check long before that check got there. So the second that check hit the account, it was gone. So he gets back, can't pay me back. No worries, we'll work something out. Wound up paying for a bunch of stuff on my credit card. So after a while, I've got a huge bill on my credit card. He's got no money to pay. Some tension was building. We're at church during the music. We're singing, and I've got my hands in the air, and I glance over at Esther, and she's bawling, just crying. And, you know, it was decent worship, but nothing worth crying about. So, <laughs> so I'm curious what's going on. And on the way home, I was, you know, in my sensitive way, you know, it's with all the waterworks. And I thought she was probably having a meaningful uh, moment with God because usually when I cry, it's, something like that. And uh, she said she didn't want to talk about it. She needed time to process, which is a little weird. So I was like, okay. So I kind of left her alone. And finally she came to me and she was grumpy. And she said, while we were singing, God told me that we need to forgive him all that debt. And I was mad. And I was crying because I'm angry because I don't want to do it. And, I, and it was 
pretty legit. So we spent some time, we prayed about it, and we came to the conclusion that it was from God. And so I called him up. I called him my buddy, and I was like, dude, I don't want a penny. We've got this. God has spoken to our hearts, and I don't want you to even put one more thought worth of stress into this. Of course, he said, no, I'm eventually going to pay back. I was like, we don't want it. Find somebody to give it to because we feel like God told us we need to forgive this debt. And we did, and Esther was not happy. (laughs) But she did it. She obeyed God. Within a couple months, we were debt-free, and we had enough money to put new siding on our house. Our siding was falling off. We were not only debt-free, but God provided enough money for us to put siding on our house. Learn more about stewardship in that moment than we ever have. And never gave a penny to the church about it. I mean, we tithed when God gave us money. We, we gave, but God is into way more than just the money. We were looking at a bottom line in that situation. God was looking at a relationship. God was looking at our hearts. And God was like, I could write a check for the money in a second. The money's not the problem. Quit looking at the money. You were about to lose a relationship over something so stupid. Like, you need to worry about the relationship. You need to make that relationship right. I'll worry about the money. God was looking for way more than just a checking account. He wanted to know what was going on in our hearts. Esther was growing bitter. I was growing angry that my wife was growing bitter and there was a lot of bad stuff going on. And God was like, this is the bigger issue. You take care of your heart and I'll take care of your money. So take a minute this morning and ask God to show you your blind spot. While you're stressing one aspect of stewardship and you're, you're really feeling good about this one piece of the stewardship puzzle What's the part you're ignoring? What's the part that, that, that you're missing? Take that to God. Embrace the tension that this is not an easy subject. That there, there is no easy, quick, I can't come up here and give you a formula. And, and from that point on, you're a good steward. That's not how stewardship works. Stewardship is a relationship. So embrace that. Embrace that complexity this morning. And then go to Jesus and as we take communion, just say, what am I mismanaging? What, am, what could I do better? Way more than money. Tomorrow, Next week we'll talk about money. This week we're talking about everything. So what am I mismanaging? What could I do better? What could I manage better? What have I not surrendered to you? What am I holding on and saying, no, this is mine. I don't want your input in this one. Find your blind spot and then offer that up to Jesus. Let's go to the table.